My Govanen, welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and somewhere in my last live stream, after it was published as just a regular video, somebody commented after the fact uh, by the name of Matthew Gellis and asked if I could do a video on the destruction of Numenor and the problem of evil, because. In Tolkien's world, of course, we're basically operating under more or less a Judeo-Christian assumption that Eru Iluvatar is the one good god. And <clears throat> the person had the question of, well, isn't the destruction of Numenor a little bit of a problem for that? Because couldn't he have saved the island or found some way to avoid, you know, killing a bunch of innocents who might have still been on the island or, you know, something along those lines. And this question is very much the same kind of question that typically gets asked in actual theological debates, often between Christians and atheists, or Christians and, you know, adherents to other religions. When you want to attack Christianity, one of the most common ways to do it is to attack the goodness of God, because that's such a central tenet of the faith. So, People will often point to, say, the Israelite conquest of Canaan or other events like the Flood to make the argument that, well, look, God isn't actually good because he kills innocents, he does, you know, really nasty things, he allows evil to happen, all this kind of stuff. So there's some really deep theodicy stuff going on here. And for those of you not familiar, the word theodicy is literally just the the study or argument over whether God is good and the the attempt to defend God as good. It's like a, an attempt to vindicate God in the presence of an attack on his goodness. So, it's the same thing in Christianity as it would be in this question. It's just a little bit different, obviously, because here we're not talking strict theology, but the implications are basically the same, because if Tolkien's god, Eru, can be good, then it's on the same terms as the Christian god, because Tolkien is essentially using Eru as the Christian god, just in a pre-Christian or even, indeed, a pre-Jewish era. So, can we salvage God's goodness in the face of the destruction of Numenor? Well, I'm not going to attempt to make an argument from a purely theodicy-type position here because I don't want to make this channel about theology. Don't get me wrong, I love discussing this kind of stuff too, and I think that you can do it, but I think an easier thing and a more appropriate thing for purposes of this channel would be to take the Numenor destruction and compare it to other events that happen, say, in the Bible that would be parallel enough that we can say, if Tolkien can say that, you know, the real Christian God is good in the face of these events in the Bible, then we can also say that Eru Iluvatar is good even in the face of the destruction of Numenor. Now, there are caveats to this point, because... I don't know for sure exactly how literally Tolkien would have taken many of the events in the Bible that 
tend to get brought up in this particular vein. Did he believe that the Israelites literally conquered Canaan and wiped out whole peoples? Did he believe that you know the flood literally covered the entire earth? These are things that people within Christianity argue about. Some people say the flood was really only local. Some say it was covering the whole earth. I mean, there's different points here. I'm not getting into the weeds of that. My purpose is simply to say, given what we have to work with and that the comparison naturally is the Bible, if we can say that the Christian God is good despite some of the things there, then that parallel carries over to Numenor. And beyond that, I just, like I said, if I go too much beyond that, I'm going to be delving just straight into theology. And I will make a few just general points just because I think that's kind of necessary and partially in making the parallels. And I do want to address a couple of his specific aspects of the question, which I will read in its entirety here in a minute, but I'm not going to use those general points to delve into a just huge deep dive into theodicy and all that. I just, that's not really the point of this channel. So I'm going to start by reading his question in its entirety, address a few general points, and then look at what I think is the best parallel in the Bible, and that'll kind of give us an idea of how we might think about Numenor, you know, in a, in a parallel way to the way that we think about, you know, how the Christian God interacts with the world in the Bible. So let's start with the question first. There is one issue that I have never heard anyone discuss. Much is said about Tolkien's love of nature, etc., and it's all about peace, love, and understanding in his works. But why hasn't Tolkien been taken to task concerning the destruction of Numenor? It seems an entire civilization was held responsible for the decisions and actions of one bad king. Did the entire island of Numenor have to be destroyed? I'm assuming there were innocents, women and children, for example, who were wiped out in this genocide. Any chance you could do any episode on this subject? Truly enjoy your content and look forward each week to a new episode. Thank you. So, he specifically brings up the idea of women and children, innocents who have been killed, and I don't know that any prominent theologian has ever made this argument, um, but I have heard the argument, and I forget where. It's been a long time. But there is some idea, and this also goes to his, his point about why did the whole thing need to be destroyed for, you know, basically one bad king. First of all, it's clear in the story that by this point, Numenor is majority kingsmen versus faithful. The faithful are a minority, and probably a small minority, and a good chunk of them are getting on boats and leaving. So it's not even really clear that there are any innocents left on the island, now, we do have Tar Muriel, who we get the idea would have been probably a good queen. She was the daughter of Tar Palantir, who repented of what his prior ancestors had done in the last several generations and turned back towards, you know, being faithful and friends with the elves and that sort of thing. And Muriel was then taken by force by Arpharazon, who was just so popular that nobody was really going to stop him, and of course, the king's men were the majority, so it would have been really hard to stop him anyway, because he was this really prominent figure who was very popular with, you know, most Numenorians, had power, used it, seized more power, forced Muriel into marriage, and she's kind of stuck. Now, 
Was Muriel truly innocent? We don't know enough about her really to answer the question. So she's kind of a weird specific case. But we do see her at the end of the story trying to climb to the heights of Minotarma to escape the waves. And the implication seems to be that she was in fact still faithful herself. But this goes to the broader point I was going to make about the, you know, innocents who theoretically might still be on the island if there if there were any. The whole idea that a whole nation can be punished or destroyed for the actions of its bad king, it's a slightly more complicated thing than that because, yes, the king has the power and makes the rules and, you know, does things like that and has, in this case, the army and indeed a majority of the population on his side, but a king can only rule so long as his people let him. And there are clear instances in the story of faithful being taken and sacrificed, you know, at Sauron's completely unholy altar to Melkor, or Morgoth, as he ought to be named, really. (laughs) But, so there's people who do speak up enough to be on the radar, and there were also people who were leaving Numenor, faithful who were leaving Numenor before the destruction, to go back to Middle-earth so they could get out of the situation. Which leads you to wonder if there are any faithful left in Numenor who aren't on those nine ships that Elendil and his sons are commanding. Are they there because they're just too lackadaisical to do anything about the situation? Uh, Are they just stuck? Uh, Could they have done anything? We don't really know, but... The point I'm trying to get at here is it's hard ever to say that a person is just a pure innocent if you're not doing anything to either escape the situation or fight back. And if you were fighting back, you were probably sacrificed in Numenor. And if you were doing something besides that, you were probably trying to get off the island and go to Middle-earth. Anybody else, it would be difficult to say that we could for sure, call them innocent, because at that point, they're kind of complicit, at least. Um, And it, you know, that gets tricky, but that's my point. It's always a little bit complicated. The idea that you can be merely an innocent in a situation where the ruler of a country is, you know, completely detestable and going off the rails, and therefore ought to be resisted, or at least you ought to be defecting, you know, if you're not doing either of those things, are you innocent or are you just kind of going along to get along so you don't have to make yourself uncomfortable? Because defecting or leaving your home is uncomfortable, let's face it. I mean, if you are valuing your comfort level and your ability to just stay where you are and not have to uproot, find a new place to live, that kind of thing, are you really innocent? So... There's an argument there that nobody left on the island was truly innocent. Now, again, caveats, there could have been people who literally were just stuck and who Sauron's minions hadn't gotten around to rounding up for purposes of sacrificing in the Black Temple. So you can never really say for sure one way or the other, but it at least raises the possibility that, you know, maybe there weren't actually any innocents. And this extends to Tarmiriel herself, 
yes, she was forced into marriage, but could she have done something? I mean, she could have resisted and forced our Farazan to really do something nasty to her or get rid of her or something. But for years, she apparently did nothing. And again, that seems to indicate maybe she was just kind of going along to get along so that she didn't, you know, either end up in jail or on, you know, the chopping block, literally, or who knows? I mean, but again, we don't know enough about her story to know exactly what's going on for the most part. But the fact that the story goes on for so long after Arpharazon takes power and she is still there at the very end tends to make me think that she could have done more than what she did, even if it was just to make, you know, to keep trying to get Farazan to change his mind to the point that he gets irritated and gets rid of her or something. The fact that she is still there as queen at the end of the story makes me think that she was probably not doing as much as she should have. So all of those things kind of coalesce together there and make the point that just because you're a woman doesn't mean you're not, you know, guilty. And uh, as far as children, children are innocents by and large. Not all children are innocents because you can't have children who are, you know, and often this is because they've been indoctrinated by their parents or the broader culture. Think the Hitler Youth in World War II or, you know, Hitler's Germany. Uh, so, you know, you Depending on your age, even as a child, you could be not an innocent. Uh, and that gets trickier, too, and that you can really delve into some serious theodicy issues there. So I don't want to go too far. But, again, this is a civilization in decline, and it's a really nasty one. And one wonders if Tolkien even considered that there would have been many children in Numenor at this point. Uh because from his point of view, as a Catholic especially, civilizations that are really going downhill in a moral sense probably are abandoning their what what he would consider their human duty to reproduce and, you know, continue the species. So you have to wonder if he would have already considered them to be kind of dropping off in that regard and not reproducing as much anyway. But even if they were, again, a lot of children at a certain age, they become not mere innocents. I mean, and Tolkien even kind of addresses this in the Lost Road story, which he never finished, sadly, because I would have loved to have read the whole thing. I'm pretty sure I've done a video on that. If I have, I will link to it in the description below. But in the Lost Road story, we get a glimpse of... I forget now if it's Velandil and Elendil, or if it's Elendil and one of his sons. I forget exactly the the two characters that it is, but one of them, the father, is very clearly a faithful. And the son, it's not so clear, but one thing that is clear is that he is afraid, at least, of his father getting into trouble, and therefore doesn't want to make an issue out of anything. Now... I think in the story, the son is an adult, or at least very nearly an adult. But you can imagine this conversation happening even if the child was 12, 10. You know, you could be aware enough at that age to be in a position to be afraid enough to make decisions that would be 
not innocent at a, at a, at a minimum. Now, once you get down to babies, those, of course, are innocents. And there you just have to run into the question of, you know, real theodicy. But, again, I'm not going to get into that level of detail. But, you know, again, true innocents, most of them, I would assume, at this point, are probably on those nine ships getting ready to go. And the, the one thing I will say, as far as infants goes, if there were infants who were infants of you know, children of the king's men, are they really going to be innocent in five years or however long? Probably not. I mean, if you're getting raised by that culture, you're going to fit into that culture by and large. I mean, people don't tend to stray too far from their parents as a general rule. There are exceptions. Uh, so at some point, those children are not going to be innocents. There's almost no chance that if you're raised in that, you know, milieu, that you're going to grow up and be, oh, I'm going to be an elf friend. That's just not going to happen. Uh, so that's that's the only thing I'll say about that. But that doesn't mean that they're not innocent as infants. But that's just a point that I wanted to mention. So those are kind of the general points that I wanted to raise. Now let's look at a biblical par- parallel to this story And one might be tempted to look at the flood, because indeed Numenor is flooded in a sense, in in that it drowns, you know, under the ocean. But that's not the one that I want to look at, because in the flood story, we are basically explicitly told that literally everybody other than Noah and his family are all bad. And we're not told that about Numenor We're not told that everybody not on those ships is, at least I don't think we are, that everybody not on the ships is of the king's men and, you know, a bad person. So I don't necessarily want to use that example, although it certainly does bear a lot of resemblances. Uh, And speaking of floods, I actually did want to mention one other general point about, you know, why did he have to destroy the whole island? Well... You have to remember that the the thing about the way this goes down is it's not just the destruction of Numenor, it is the separating of Valinor from Middle-earth. And the way that that has to be done is a huge chasm in what was then, you know, in the old conception at least, a flat earth has to be made and the world made round and that chasm has to fall somewhere between Valinor and Middle-earth. And what's in the middle? Numenor. So there's not really any getting around, you know, sinking the island. And the reason that Valinor has to be separated, and this gets into the example that I do want to use, although it's kind of an odd example because it's not as destructive, is that the reason is you have to separate Valinor because the whole point was men can't be allowed to go there anymore because if they are allowed, they will try. Numenor is not going to forget, you know, that Valinor is over there and that they want to take the immortality that they think they can take by taking the land. And so Valinor just has to be separated so that men don't, in their arrogance or pride or whatever, try to take what is not theirs and what they can't get anyway. So that leads into my biblical example, which is the Tower of Babel. And the Tower of, or Babel, depending on how you want to pronounce it, some people pronounce it one way, some the other way. 
I use Babel because that's where we get the word Babel from. <laughs> At any rate, the Tower of Babel is in that sense a very similar scenario because what happens in the Bible, for those of you not familiar, at one point prior to this incident, everybody on earth spoke the same language, which, you know, makes sense. You're starting from Adam and Eve, and everybody literally is descended from them. They're all going to speak one language. There's no reason they would all come up with different ones. So everybody speaks the same language, and they're all kind of together, and they get this idea in their heads that we're going to build a tower that goes all the way to heaven. And it's not exactly made clear the details but what we get is God basically says, you know, if, if they all get together to do whatever, there's really nothing they can't do and nothing's going to stop them and they can't be allowed to do this. So I am going to confound their languages. They're all going to end up with different languages, which will keep them from all coming together and doing this and it'll separate them into different groups and that'll keep things from getting to this point again. That part is not made explicit, but that is kind of the implication that, you know, once once you have multiple people groups with different languages that can't communicate with each other, that's going to prevent them from ever coming together as one group and doing something this uh, arrogant, prideful, uh, too, you know, they're, they're trying to reach beyond their their scope. And so this parallels the Numenor story in some really interesting ways because it's essentially the same thing. The men of Numenor are trying to reach for immortality and what, you know, not exactly heaven, but paradise in a sense, which is kind of what the men at the Tower of Babel were doing. They were trying to build a tower all the way to heaven, presumably to kind of become gods. I mean, like, what? obviously there's not a whole lot of point in building a building that's just so high that you get all the way to heaven just to do it. Why would they do it? Well, I can think of two reasons. One, you want to go to where God is so you can kind of become a god yourself. Or, just for the sheer arrogance and, you know, self-aggrandizement of it just to show how awesome you are, neither of which are good motives. So once you have that going on, the whole idea here is in both situations, you have a civilization that has grown so powerful and has grown so corrupt that it wants to basically seize, you know, deification or immortality or whatever for itself and is going to do that unless something stops it. And in the case of the biblical story, God stops it by preventing them from cooperating, by changing all their languages and forcing them to kind of separate. And as a result of that, of course, what, you know, if you look through history, what happens is people groups with different languages and different cultures fight wars and people die and stuff like that. They don't cooperate very well for the most part. In the Numenor story, it's kind of a combination of the Tower of Babel plus the Flood, and you get the destruction of the island. But in both cases, the point is we can't allow, you know, this kind of thing to happen again. Men have to be prevented from getting that advanced and that, you know, whatever, and 
being able to approach or incur, you make incursions on places or ideas that they really don't have any business with. And in that, you know, in Middle Earth, that means Valinor. So the Numenorians have to be permanently separated from their ability to travel to Valinor, and the only way to do that is to, you know, divide Valinor from off of Earth, turn Earth into a sphere, and that means the Numenor is going to sink because it's in the middle of that ocean where the giant chasm gets created, and it just by physics falls into the ocean. So, as a result, it's flooded, you know, and therefore that that there is that parallel to the the flood of Noah, but I find the the Tower of Babel way more thematically kind of connected to the Numenor story because ultimately it's about the same thing. the The flood of Noah happens merely because everybody in the world is corrupt except Noah and his family, and God's just like, okay, this has gone too far. People need to be wiped out because they're all evil. Start over with Noah and we're okay, at least for a while. Whereas the Tower of Babel is very specifically because of something very like what the the king of Numenor and the king's men wanted, which was to reach beyond what they're really allowed to have, try to get something that was not theirs, never meant to be theirs, and God therefore steps in to set up permanent barriers to that thing ever happening again. So, it's a really much more, I don't want to say theological exactly, but thematic parallel because the reasoning for God's response in both cases is very much the same. Now, the Tower of Babel doesn't result in wholesale destruction of peoples and that sort of thing, but like I mentioned earlier, what it does lead to is you no longer have everybody in the world cooperating all together for the same purpose. You get lots of wars, and in wars, innocent people die, and, you know, this is what happens. Now, did God know that when he divided their languages? Well, presumably, because the whole point was to get them to not cooperate. And ultimately, how do you get people to not cooperate? By making them enemies. Because if you really wanted to cooperate, you still could. We found ways to translate languages and do things, you know, so that people can communicate to this day. At this point, everybody in the world could theoretically come together, but they don't because they tend to be more hostile than otherwise, even when we have, you know, ways to communicate and try to cooperate in ways that we couldn't if we didn't have those interpretations, right? So the idea here seems to be that God made the calculation it is better in the long haul that there be some death and destruction, even of innocence, versus allowing humans to, you know, all come together, become completely corrupt, and reach for something that they shouldn't have, and, you know, come pretty close to doing something that might be... And the implication here is, of course, always really interesting. It's like, what actually would humans achieve, have achieved, if they had accomplished their goal with the Tower of Babel? It's not clear, and there's a lot of different random theories about that, and I don't think it's really that important which one you take, but the idea mainly is humans can't be allowed to all be on the same page 
And because humans corrupt, this is like the Judeo-Christian worldview, humans are going to fall. They're fallen, and they're going to fall farther. And if you let them all get together and cooperate, it's only going to be worse. And if they can all cooperate and do something like, you know, try to build a tower that goes all the way to heaven, whatever exactly that means or implies, that's even worse. So the calculation was if they are allowed to continue down this path, it's going to be worse than if we just separate them all, which will lead to some people dying, but it will still be better in the long run. And that's a calculation that God could make, because God, in the Christian Judeo-Christian worldview, knows enough to make that calculation. And so you have that and again, this goes back to the whole part of the reason why I don't think the Flood is really the best example, although there are a lot of weird, interesting and weird parallels with the Numenor story. That's another reason why the Tower of Babel is better than the Numenor, better than the Flood as a parallel to Numenor, because yes, while innocents on Numenor die in a Flood-like situation, it's not the whole world being wiped out like the Flood. It's a large, but still much smaller portion of the entire human population. So, while there may be innocents dying in Numenor, they more closely uh, parallel with the innocents that die in wars, which occur as a result of languages and cultures being separated, rather than all the people in the world dying in a great Noatian flood. So, that's why I think the Tower of Babel is actually a better example because when you look at it, the scale is actually a lot smaller than the Noatian Flood, and it's the reasoning behind it is also very parallel. Whereas with the Noatian Flood, like I said, it's merely that the whole world is corrupt, not that they're trying to all get together and achieve something that they shouldn't. Now, Numenor obviously is not the whole world, and therefore it's not the whole world coming together to try to achieve something, but it is a civilization which is so advanced that it could be compared to the Tower of Babel. And that is one theory, is that the Tower of Babel situation, the human civilization at that time was so advanced that they were able to do things that were not they were not capable of doing later. How accurate that theory is, nobody really knows, but it's an interesting thing to think about. Like, what, what could they have actually achieved? I mean, we have skyscrapers today which are t- taller than basically anything that was built by any of the ancients, could they have outdone skyscrapers? I mean, you get the whole, you know, population of the entire world together, and we don't know what size that would have been at the Tower of Babel, but if you get tons and tons and tons of people together, we already know that what one little nation of Egypt could do, they could build huge pyramids. If you get everybody together, how big could that pyramid be? You know, taller than a mountain? Who knows? So, that's why I use this example is because it's it's a lot more parallel if you really look at the details. So if you can say that God in splitting up the nations, you know, at well creating the nations basically because there wasn't really nations before Babel if you take that story to be literal. Um at Babel he divides the people into nations with different languages and that has the result of innocent people dying down the road, and that's more or less an inevitable result, if a god in that scenario can be good because he can calculate, well, in the long run, that's still better than the alternative, 
well, Eru Iluvatar could still be good in the destruction of Numenor. Now, again, there's a lot more deeper arguments that you could make in terms of the theodicy of the thing and, you know, just really diving deep into that issue. But, like I said, I'm not trying to make this a theological video, although you have to touch on it a little bit, obviously. But I think if, you know, for purposes of the channel, since this is a Tolkien channel, and I don't want to just turn it into a theological video, I think, you know, for Tolkien, as a Catholic, you know, if he's looking at the Bible and saying, okay, here's these different stories that happen where, you know, God's goodness can potentially be called into question, he takes those, parallels them in the story of Numenor, and for Tolkien, if he believes that, you know, the Christian God is good despite these things that happen in the Bible, then that transfers over, I think, rather well to the Numenor story. Because like the, you know, Tower of Babel situation, God steps in to prevent men from becoming so advanced and so powerful that they can do something which has unknown ramifications, really. And as a result, Innocent people will die in the future. That's, it's kind of inevitable. So, do I think that Tolkien necessarily thought about it in that level of detail? No, probably not. Uh, but he very well might have. I mean, he thought about a lot of things <laughs> a lot of the time. He was constantly thinking about Middle-earth, and he was also constantly thinking about ways to make it consistent with his own faith, and... How much that went into theodicy, I don't know, because it most of what his writings relate to is not that, although it, he does touch on that in some places. But Numenor started as just his way of trying to do the Atlantis myth, and it just kind of, you know, became part of his, you know, overall legendarium, and there you go. But I certainly think if you asked him, you know, are you really comfortable with God stepping in and destroying the island of Numenor... I think he would probably find ways to connect it to biblical stories like these and say, well, if my God is good despite doing these things, I don't see why Eru Iluvatar wouldn't be good despite destroying the island of Numenor. So, those are my thoughts on that topic. Uh, like I said, there's a ton more stuff we could discuss here. Feel free to discuss in the comments. If you're going to get into theology in the comments, I don't care, but please, please, please keep it calm, cool, and collected, <laughs> because I know that can lead to really, really heated stuff, so don't, don't turn that into a flame war, don't turn that into anything nasty, please keep it very intellectual and very, you know, even keeled if you're going to get into it, preferably stay in, you know, the realm of talking about Tolkien and how we can kind of just look at this from a Tolkienian lens you know, keeping in mind that, of course, some of that means the theology that he himself adhered to in, you know, Catholicism. So you're going to bring in theology one way or the other. But, you know, I think the main point here is, like I said, for my channel is to keep it Tolkien-focused and not turn it into a big theological debate. I don't care if y'all want to have a theological debate. Just like I said, keep it, keep it nice. <laughs> That said, if you enjoyed the video, please do give it a like, share it around. This is a fascinating topic, I will say. So, I mean, I'm glad it was suggested and it just took me longer to get to it because I was out sick, as most of you probably know. But, 
you know, I, I, I do enjoy the topic, so I'm glad it was raised. So if you, if you also enjoy it, like I said, give it a thumbs up. Subscribe if you want to catch all my future content. Click that bell icon to make sure you don't miss anything. You can find my support links, alternate uh, platforms, and social links in the description below. Follow me on Twitter for occasional Tolkien-related trivia questions. And until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namariye. Thanks to all the channel supporters, especially Elf Friends, PA Brew News, Nathan DeFore, Paul Leone, and Oleg Gregg.